If you have, have your copy of God's Word with you, I would invite you to t- turn to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5. And we are, of course, going to be continuing our studies here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30. And I would just ask that if you're able to stand again for the reading of the Word of God. These are the words of our Savior, the words of our King. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. To join with me in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, we ask that you make the eternal and abiding truths of your word known to us by means of the communication of the Holy Spirit and his illuminating power. Dear Lord, we just ask that you would frame our minds aright to receive your teaching tonight. We pray that all thoughts and and distractions of worldly and secular things, though they may not be sinful in and of themselves, would be removed from our minds, that we may have, have clarity in our thoughts, clarity in our hearts to receive your truth. Lord, all is in vain if not aided by your grace, and we cannot do this without you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, of course, we are continuing with our studies in the Sermon on the Mount. We are uh, picking up on a lot of the same themes that were covered in our last sermon where Christ takes the sixth commandment, the commandment uh, that says you shall not murder, and he, he, what he does is, is he looks at that commandment and he looks at how the scribes and the Pharisees had erroneously corrupted the true meaning of the law. And, and what Jesus, as our true prophets, and our true interpreter of the law is the one who gave it. What, what he shows us there, and what may be hard for us to receive, is that that commandment against murder, really what it, the, the anger in our hearts, which eventually leads to murder, Jesus says that that is where the sin is. And Jesus demonstrates to us that anger itself, just, just, just the the emotion and the heart is enough to make a man liable to, his, to God's judgment and wrath. And what we had to realize is that by those sayings of Jesus, all of us are condemned. There's not, there's not one of us who, who can stand aright if God should uh, count that uh, iniquity against us. And one of the things that that I mentioned in that last sermon, which will again become clear tonight, as this text is expounded, is that really 
What we see Jesus doing here in this section is really nothing more than he's just practically applying what he said as the sixth beatitude. In verse 8, we remember Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. And, and, And what we're talking about is that true, genuine Christian spirituality and religion flows from a man's heart, which is the deep well of his soul and does not merely take into account his external deeds and and, and the actions of a man. For those things are ultimately determined by the state of one's heart. In the last passage we looked at, Jesus applied this ever-important truth to the sinfulness of anger and murder. And and that and those I mean those emotions of anger that's that's a timeless uh, thing that we can talk about that 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 strikes a chord with all of humanity and 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 in a similar fashion Jesus is now going to apply the same principle to lust and adultery and by extension all sexual sin now uh, just some words I, I guess before we really delve into this text and. and as I've uh, talked with, with some of the other uh, men at, at this church and about this and, and similar topics, one of the things that I, I think is apparent to all of us is though human beings still sin in the same way, it, there's, and, and, and I forget, and, and, and because of the fact that we're talking about sex and sexuality, you, you're going to have to be comfortable with hearing me use those words in church. Uh, I, I think it's best to just speak frankly about that uh, rather than using euphemisms. And, and, and so there's, and, and I forget who, who I heard say this, but you know, every generation thinks that they're the first generation uh, to discover that sex feels good. Uh, but what, what we have to recognize is those are, are issues and those are situations which had a, a, a relevance to all of humanity, all generations past. But I think at, at the very same time as I say that, we are living in a day, an age, and a culture that has a unique, I think, circumstances and, and unique topics that need, need to be addressed as most of you know, I, I, I tend to gravitate towards uh, the older uh, divines, uh, the, the Puritans of the 17th century. And, and, and you know, as, as I read, you know, William Perkins or, or, or uh, Matthew Henry or even going back, you know, my favorite John Calvin, the, the things that they're saying, of course, have application to today, but I, I read these men and I recognize there are situations and there are challenges and obstacles that we have to deal with in 2024 that you know John Calvin never had to talk about about internet pornography and some of these other things and so one of the other things that that I just want to mention is because of the fact that these sermons uh, get distributed online we we there are more people who listen to these sermons over the internet than actually uh, show up uh, for the physical service. So, so I want to, as I expound this text, focus and make points of application towards numerous different things. And so there are going to be things that I say that may ne- not necessarily have much of an application to you, 
but I, but I trust that God would use this in some way to be a blessing to other people. But even when I am addressing those topics, I, I would ask that you still listen and pay attention because some of you in this room have grandchildren. And though you may not necessarily need to hear some of these things I'm going to say, they might. Uh, or just the general fact that you know, the Great Commission, and we are to go into the world and, and to teach Christ's commandments, we want to know how to deal and, and to minister to other people and, and the things that they have to deal with. And so with those things being said at the outset, I, I want to just read again uh, Jesus' words. In, in verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, last week, we talked about what Jesus is doing here. He'll, when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, what Jesus is doing is he is exposing the false interpretations, the false understandings of the Old Testament law by the Pharisees, as well as giving us the true meaning. So he invokes the words of the seventh commandment, which says, you shall not commit adultery. But then to the shock of his audience and people who have read the gospel for the past 2,000 years, Jesus also adds this. He says, but I say to you, and, and he is introducing to us the true, unchanging, eternal standard that is being communicated in God's law, and he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we know uh, in the first century or in this period of, of Judaism, we know of other rabbis who likewise looked down on lust, and there were, of course, according to uh, the Talmud, those Pharisees who were known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And, and do, do you know why they, they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees? Well, they got their name from the fact that any time they would see a, a woman, they would shut, they, they would cover their eyes, and thus they would go about knocking in, into different things, literally acquiring all sorts of you know, very, very pious injuries that they could uh, be proud of and, 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 and so that you could look and see just how spiritual uh, they are. That's one of the reasons why it's so controversial in John chapter 4 when Jesus is, is approaching uh, the woman of Samaria at the well because the other Pharisees and, and uh, the Pharisees and, and the rabbis, they, they would have never done that. But what, what they're doing is is another extreme where they are just trying to superficially puff up how spiritual they are. And, of course, we understand the, the vanity that is within that. And so what Jesus wants to do is he doesn't want to do the, the uh, overreaction, the, the legalistic way that the Pharisees tried to, to deal with the reality of lust and sexuality. He, he wants to show us that the, the root of the problem lies in the heart. And I just want to say this, if that is where the problem lies within our heart, it's not going to be solved by you know, any time you see a woman 
covering your eyes. That sounds silly to your ears, and and it's silly for a reason. So there has to be something uh, else to address this. And so Jesus says that the sin of adultery is ultimately found in the heart that lusts. Uh, This is, once again, very consistent with what what he said earlier about um, anger uh, being as worthy of the judgment of murder. And I think is equally convicting to all of us who hear these words. Um, there, you know, once again, when, when Jesus says something like this, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, or if, you're, or, or if we could say everyone who looks at a man with lustful intent uh, is, is guilty of sin, there's, there's not one person in here, and I would uh, challenge you, you, you don't stand acquitted at that. That, that, that is a, a, a universal condemnation. And so, just so that we can understand the precise nature of this sin better, we should note that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when Paul is going through the Ten Commandments with Timothy, when he gets to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, he expands it. And Paul says, he refers to the sexually immoral, which is a, a broad uh, term uh, that, that deals with all manner of sexual sin. And then he also specifically adds, he says, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. And what this does is it demonstrates that under the seventh commandment, all sexual sin is being forbidden, not just the specific act of Adultery, where a spouse has sexual relations outside of the sacred covenant of marriage he or she has committed to. And so in the first century Jewish context, Jesus uses the word adultery, and what that does is it's like a broad term referring to sexual sin. So just, just thinking about this culture in this time period, most people were married at what we would consider today to be a very young age. And so, you know, we have this concept in our day and in our culture of premarital sex. Well, that's not really a concept in first century Judaism because there's hardly anyone who has hit puberty that's not already married. And so it should be recognized that since the Bible has this larger umbrella category of sexual immorality, any and all lust in those parameters, heterosexual infidelity, heterosexual fornication, i.e. premarital sex, and any homosexual relationship is here condemned by Jesus. And I suppose we should here define what is meant by lustful intent. I don't, I don't think this really needs explained uh, too much, but most people are able to recognize that there is a, a difference between looking at someone and looking at someone with lustful intent. So th- those, those are not the same thing, obviously. And I would even argue that there is a difference between looking at another person, recognizing them as, as a physically attractive, beautiful person, and, and lusting at them. So the Bible oftentimes will describe a, a woman as, as beautiful. Like the Word of God will just say, such and such was a, a beautiful woman. Uh, Genesis 29:17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. 
And so in the, the text, the biblical author, Moses, is identifying Rachel as physically attractive, beautiful in form and appearance, and is even contrasting her with her older sister, Leah. Now, I'm not sure how Leah felt about that, but, but of course, this is the story of Jacob going to, to meet his wife, and, and if you're familiar with the story, the fact that Jacob or that the fact that Rachel was a more beautiful woman, that's a major plot point in the narrative. And so when, when Moses, when he describes Rachel or other women as beautiful, well, no one ever accuses him of, of sinning or, or being inappropriate or anything like that. Uh, you know, and so people may think that the Bible is against beauty, but it is not. The Bible has a category for recognizing a person's physical beauty in a non-sinful way. What Jesus specifically condemns here is looking at a woman or a man with lustful intent. And what this means, what lustful intent means is that there is something in the looking at the other person which is connected to a desire for sin in your heart. And so just to prove to you that Jesus is not changing or adding to the law or to the commandments, I should remind you that the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is, that is your neighbor's. And so you see that even in the commandments, even in the Old Testament law, God is concerned not just with our actions outwardly, but he is concerned with the inward desires of the heart. Now, given the fact that adultery is the specific word used by Jesus, I shall deal with it first. Adultery is just thinking about what it is, is such a, a heinous sin as it violates and destroys one's own family. And so 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household. And that's if anyone, if there's a father who is not willing to, to go to work or to do the things that he needs to do to provide for his wife or his children, that's what's being talked about here. If anyone does not provide for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, if simply not providing for your own family makes you worse than an infidel, well, how much worse would it be to, by some sin, actively destroy your family? Now, I say that, and there may be people uh, that are married, whether man or woman, and they may be, who are listening to my voice right now, and you may be thinking to yourself, you know, you know absolutely, Logan, absolutely, adultery, that, that's such a heinous, such an evil thing, I, and, 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 and you know, I, I'm sure glad that I've, I've never done that sin. Well, before you entertain that thought too much, listen again to the words of Jesus Christ. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, now notice something that I think is significant. Jesus does not just say, has already committed adultery in his heart. What he specifically says is adultery with her in his heart. Now, 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 if you're married, I want you to think about this from your wife's perspective. Since I'm a man, I tend to speak 
uh, from a male perspective, as Jesus is doing here, obviously you know that this would apply both ways. If, if you are looking at, at another woman who is not your wife with lustful intent, you are committing a sinful, sensual act with her in your heart. Think about that. You, by your lust, are involving another woman in your own heart in a sensual way. She belongs to your heart in a sensual manner, and she is not the one whom you've made your vows to. Again, this obviously it would apply to women as well. If you are lusting after another man, you are committing a shameful act with him in your heart. He, he has entered into your heart in a certain sense. And so just, just think about that from the perspective of, of your spouse. How would that make them feel? How would it make you feel if the roles were reversed? Now, surely someone at this point whose conscience is convicting them would object to what I am saying here. That, that Logan, surely it cannot be the case that a mere look, a mere glance at someone is the same thing as adultery, and you would be right, I never said it was. I have clearly stated there is a difference between a mere look and looking with lustful intent, and you know the difference. Uh, I, I don't need to show you in any studies or any graphs. You know the difference. But if even then you still object, need I remind you that ultimately it is not me who is saying these things, but it is Jesus Christ. It is your maker. It is the one who predicted and accomplished his own death, burial, and resurrection, and the one before whom you shall stand on the last day. It is his word that brings a charge against your soul tonight. As he says in John 12, 48, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, a question that some uh, people sometimes have, which, which pastorally, and, and again, this sermon is going to be heard uh, by, by people whom I may never even meet, and, and so something I, I want to address is whether there is any application to be made in this text for, for unmarried people. And as I, I've already said, yes, there is, and I shall demonstrate that with another text of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives us one of the key texts in Scripture on the doctrine of Christian marriage. And in this passage, Paul talks about the, the goodness of marriage. And, and he even talks about the goodness and the importance of sexual relations within a marriage. And, and what he actually says is that he says to a woman, he says, you do not have authority over your own body. It belongs to your husband. And he says to the man, he says, you do not have authority over your own body, but it belongs to your wife. And he actually says that it is a sin to withhold your body from your spouse. And so contrary to what some people may, may think, the Bible has a very high view of marriage. The Bible has a very high view of sex and sexual, sexuality which is one of the reasons that adultery, uh, both physical and of the heart, is such a sinful thing. And so the Bible is not against, the Bible is not anti-sex, as some might presume. The Bible is anti-sin. The Bible considers sex to be a sacred thing, which is why it is so heinous when it is distorted. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, uh, I believe the Apostle Paul, you may disagree, says, let marriage be held in honor among all 
and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So think, think about that. When, if, if you are sinning sexually, and, and, and remember, that applies not only to our physical our outward actions, but it applies to what's in our hearts. When you are sinning sexually, you are saying to God that that thing which he calls sacred, the marriage bed, you're saying that it's not sacred. You, so so th- that's, that, that's what's happening when we sin sexually. We are taking something good that God gave to mankind and we are perverting it. Now, given the fact that marriage and the marriage bed are things which are honored, things which are praised, things which are celebrated in the scriptures, uh, you know, I, I do not say that it is innately sinful for, for a, a, an unmarried person to desire those things. As a matter of fact, that desire is given from God. But yet, we have to, I think, maintain that there is a difference between a mere desire for those things and to be burning with lust and passion. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about the fact that, that he was a single man, and he talks about the fact that he was unmarried, and he, he refers to it as though it were almost a blessing. Uh, because there are certain earthly responsibilities and commitments that come with being married that we're not going to limit or tie him down uh, or, or limit his capacity for ministry. And so just as being married is praised in the Scriptures, singleness has its place as well. But what I'm getting to is he then gives this important qualifier in verse 9. He says, But if they, referring to unmarried people, cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so since then, burning with sexual passion or lust is here condemned by the apostle, I would say that Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount have an application to be made to non-married people as well. Obviously, you could not convict them of adultery specifically, but, but when there is that desire for sin which is taking over your heart, that itself is a problem. That itself is sin. And so, uh, you know, to any, you know, non-married people, if you, like, like if you look at, at, at another unmarried person, obviously this wouldn't apply to a married person, but if you look at an unmarried person and you say, like, you know, boy, I, I think she would make a great wife. I don't say there's anything sinful in that. Uh, what I'm talking about is when there's a look and it is connected to a burning passion and desire for sin in the heart. And to make it exceedingly clear, pornography would obviously fall into that category. And so if you think that talking about sex and sexuality is uncomfortable in church, I would first remind you that we are not uh, done. And then, I, I, secondly, I'd also say that I think the fact that we are so afraid as Christians to talk about these basic things. I mean, th- there, there is not a, a, a person, there's not a breathing soul to whom topics of sex and sexuality do not apply. And so if we as the Christian church are not willing to speak for what the Bible says about these issues, well, we are in error, and perhaps we are to blame when those whom we love fall into error. 
But the next thing I want to talk about, as if there wasn't already some uncomfortable emotions in here, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, homosexuality. And so I've already demonstrated from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that the Apostle Paul applies the seventh commandment towards all sexual sin, whether it's heterosexual or not, but then he specifically mentions homosexuality. And so therefore, everything that, that I've just said about lust would apply to homosexual lust. Now, that's very obvious, but okay, why am I bringing this up? Well, the reason is because there is a growing movement that is known in certain circles that is known as side B Christianity. Now, what is side B Christianity? Well, side B Christianity essentially says, side B Christianity will affirm what the Bible says about homosexuality and will affirm that homosexual actions are sinful. But what side B says is that homosexual orientation or attraction is not. So, so a side, side B Christianity says that you could identify as, uh, yourself as a homosexual, but truly live in a right relationship with Christ so long as you do not act on those desires. Now, there are two primary issues with this position. Firstly, it contradicts Jesus' teaching in this passage. Secondly, and this is very, very important, it is a message of sheer enslavement. And I will explain those two points in order. And I, and I hope you listen to that last one. And so firstly, it contradicts Jesus' teaching in this passage. Uh, you know, going based upon the text of Matthew 5 alone, we see that just as anger itself is worthy of the judgment of murder, not only is the physical act of adultery condemned, but the lust in the heart God regards as sinful as well. We see here that not only are sinful actions wrong in the sight of God, but sinful desires themselves are wrong. And so if we are going to be consistent and not just kowtow towards the culture, if we are going to be consistent just the same way that heterosexual lust, as we've already discussed, is sinful, so too is homosexual lust sinful. Furthermore, and, and here's something that's, that's really terrible. If someone is identifying themselves as a, as a, homosexual, a homosexual, that's, that's their identity. That, that, that's who they are. What they are saying is, I am a person who finds my ultimate delight and satisfaction in rebelling against God's laws. And one of the greatest schemes of the devil in this century is that people are finding their identity in these sexual perversions. And do you see how that captures and that, 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 that enslaves someone? It would be wrong for me to find my identity if, if I were to say, I am a drunkard. That is who I am. I pick up the bottle in the morning because you can't drink all day unless you start early. And I don't put it down at night. That, that is who I am. Or it would be wrong to say, I am an adulterer. That is who I am. That is my passion. That is what I live for. It would be wrong to say, I am a murderer. I am a covetous person. I am a thief. You see, we understand that it is insane 
to try and identify yourself with your sin, and yet our culture is telling us that this particular sin we need to treat in a different way. But this brings me to my next point, and that is that that message of side B Christianity is a message of sheer enslavement, and the only people who would teach that are people who hate homosexuals. I want to say that again. The only people who would teach side B Christianity are people who hate homosexuals. If you are going to tell someone that their homosexual actions are sinful but their desires are not, what you are ultimately preaching to that person is a life of slavery. Because what you're saying to that person is you're saying those things which your flesh craves are wrong and you should never in any circumstance act upon those cravings and those impulses and those urges at any point But that's all we can do. We can't actually do anything about the fact that you have these desires in the first place. So you just have to live with it. Now, that kind of miserable existence is not the kind of life that the gospel of Jesus Christ promises to us. Because in Christ, we are promised freedom from sin. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so this is a point that that I want to revisit shortly because I want to demonstrate the the redemptive power of the gospel for all who will repent and believe. Earlier we, we talked about the fact that there are those who find their identity as homosexuals. And yet what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is he refers to a number of sins and he says homosexual is one of them. But then he says, such were some of you, but you've been washed but you've been sanctified. You see, that's what the gospel does. It has the power to free us from our sin such that I no longer have to identify as that. And and brothers and sisters, that applies to any sin that you may be facing with, any sin that has held you in bondage. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a cleansing power of which you can say, I once was lost, I once was trapped, I was once a slave, but now I am a free man. I am a free woman. Jesus Christ has set me free. That is the message that we proclaim. And so I then want to apply this text in another direction that I think is very important for us to understand in our current day and age in which we live, which is also going to ensure that I remain very unpopular. So, but, so, if... If lusting is sinful, then surely causing others to lust is doubly sinful. In Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And, and he's talking about those who are, are, are young in the faith there. And, and one of the other uh, parallel passages, Jesus will say, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. That's, that's something we need to contend with. That's something that perhaps makes you think on, on, on your past life before your conversion and the things that you were involved in. And, and what did I do 
that led other people into sin? How was I being used in that way? Now, if Jesus, uh, that, that, is, that is strong language. He says it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. That's, that, that's, that's Jesus' remedy for that. And so if Jesus so strongly condemns tempting others to sin and he identifies lust as a sin, then surely if we connect the dots, Jesus would strongly condemn, for example, the, the scantily and immodest ways people, women in particular, dress themselves in our day. Now, if you thought saying something negative about homosexuality was going to cause controversy, try striking up a conversation about, about modesty and dress, and, and you will see people uh, come against you. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but recently there was a controversy on social media. Now, by the way, I don't know how seriously we are supposed to take social media controversies, but, but nevertheless, there was this meltdown, there was this all-out battle and war over a calendar that was just put out for the year 2024, which uh, featured so-called uh, politically conservative women in, in you know, bikinis and, and that type of thing. And I, I never heard of any of the people involved, I likely never would have, were not for the fact that this caught the attention of numerous Christians who, who came out, uh, strongly came out in opposition to the whole thing. It's like, if, okay, you people call yourselves conservatives. You say that you stand up for traditional values and you stand up for Christianity and, the, and these things, but, but what are you conserving? Because surely the Christian worldview is not the thing that you are trying to conserve when you have a... a you know, the bikini-clad calendar. And so if the reaction of the Christians against this basically soft-core pornography was strong, you should have seen the reaction against the Christians. I mean, the level of anger and the level of mockery directed towards the Christians was truly astonishing. You know, people are, are calling them you know, Puritans and stuff like that. And that's when I stepped in. And I said, you know, how anyone can view the term Puritan as an insult is, is just beyond me. Uh, <clears throat> and then, of course, people are coming after me and they're saying all the same old things about how I want to start burning witches and, and all, just this crazy stuff. And so, <clears throat> you know, although this is going to get you all sorts of uh, nasty reactions when you say it, the, the reality is, and and if we are not willing to speak to these things, we are not doing our job as the Christian church. The, the reality is that women who adorn their bodies in such a manner so as to entice men to lust are in sin. Jesus pronounces strong woes towards those who would bring temptation towards other people. Now, the immediate, now, if you say that, the immediate pushback that you're going to hear is people were going to this very text in Matthew chapter 5, which just so providentially is what I'm preaching on tonight, and they will say, well, look, Jesus condemns lust, and, and he says to gouge out your eyes and, and, and that sort of thing. So men just need to control themselves. And yeah, men do need to control themselves, but two things can be true at the same time. It, it is, I can say, Men, you know, you control yourself. Watch, you know, guard your heart. And at the very same time, we can also say it is sinful for women to dress like whores so as to get men to lust after them. 
Men ought to c- control themselves. Women ought to dress appropriately. Both, both things can be true in the same universe. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, Do not let your adorning be external. The bra- and he's addressing women, and he says, The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The reality is that the clothing that we wear, how we uh, present ourselves, and, and I realize I'm not the best at that, but, but the, the clothing that we wear and how we dress and adorn ourselves in public, it communicates a certain message to the world. It does. It really, really does. And, and so if, if a young woman is dressing like a harlot, what she is communicating to the world is that is, is she's communicating how she views herself. As, as she views herself as nothing more than a sex object. But if a woman dresses in a decent and respectable manner, and, and I think the law of nature can dictate that, she is communicating to the world that she truly values her body and her sexuality because her body and her sexuality are not, not bad things just in and of themselves. Th- those things have value. Those things are important. And if she is a Christian, she will handle those things in such a way to reflect that she values and honors God. And so if there are any young man, men listening, uh, it should only take you about three seconds maybe four, to decide which kind of woman is right for you. And so now that we have applied this text in a few different ways, the the proper effect these things should have on us, when we we read Jesus' words here of, of condemnation, we should realize and that that we are condemned. There is not a single soul out there male or female, who can read Jesus' words about lust and say, well, I'm innocent. Every single one of us, if we were to truly examine our own lives, if we were to truly examine our own hearts, we know that we, according to Jesus' own standard, have broken the seventh commandment. We have broken God's law. And if we should be judged Based upon our own deeds and the state of our own hearts, we would find that each and every one of us deserves God's wrath and punishment. Now, if all men are condemned, that means that all men are in need of a Savior and ought to do whatever it takes to find that Savior. That Savior has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God. He was in the beginning with God, and He was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In this, He is the preeminent one. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and it will not overcome it. God's Son became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfectly righteous life we never could have. Jesus never fell into the sin of lust as we have. He actively obeyed all of the Lord, His Father's commandments, 
perfectly. And this active obedience put him in the position of being the one man who could make a perfect sacrifice for sins once and for all. He gave his own life upon a cross, passively enduring God's just penalty for sin. He died bearing the sins and transgressions of his people, and he rose again on the third day, as those who believe in him are united with him and are raised up unto newness of life. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he lives forever to make intercession for all those who by God's grace draw near to God the Father through him. Folks, Christ is a far better Savior than we are sinners. And if we understand our own sin in light of God's law, we would flock in droves towards Jesus' forgiveness and redemption. And the promise of Scripture, which rings true, is that all those who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come to Him with nothing. Come to Him not with your own deeds, not with your own works. Come to Him with an empty-handed faith that says, Dear God, I'm a sinner. There's nothing that I can do. You count my iniquities. You count my sins. I shall fall. I cannot stand. And I need your Son, and I need His grace. And the promise is that all those who believe in the Son of God have eternal life. Not, not will have if they do enough good things, but present tense, have eternal life. H-A-V-E, that spells got it, as one preacher would say. Now, if we trust in God's grace, if we trust in Jesus' propitiation uh, for our sins, then when we look at Jesus' words here of the sinfulness of lust, well, how then should we live our lives if we are seeking to be obedient to his word. Well, Jesus goes on, and in verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body should go into hell. Now, one of the things that I think needs to be said immediately at the outset, which we alluded to earlier when we were talking about homosexuality, is that when God saves us, He supernaturally frees us from our sin. There, there, we are new creations in Christ. There is a spiritual change and transformation in our hearts. We, we used to be dead in sin, and, and, and now we have been raised up. To walk in newness of life, we've been born again. And that is how we are able to obey God's commandments. I've said it uh, numerous times throughout the sermon series, but if you tried to, if you were an unregenerate person, if you were an unbeliever and you did not have God's grace, if you did not have the Holy Spirit, and and you tried to apply the words of the Sermon on the Mount to your life, you would go insane. You, You would go insane. And so it is only through God's grace that we could ever even hope to be obedient to his commands. And so then we look at Jesus' words here and he says, if your right eye causes you to sin or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
Now, this is obviously one of Jesus' favorite sayings to use. He uses it in a number of different places, uh, talking about all kinds of sin, not even just sexual sin. And so it should really, it should go without saying that Jesus' words here are not meant to be interpreted literally or woodenly. Uh, You may be aware of of the story of Origen of Alexandria, who was active in the early 3rd century, who allegedly uh, took Jesus' words in Matthew 19 too woodenly and literally, where Jesus talks about those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Well, Origen allegedly, and, and some historians would differ, but allegedly Origen took that seriously and he emasculated himself. Now, if you're familiar at all with some of Origen's teachings, you may actually be thankful he never had any offspring, but that's, that's a whole other topic. The, the point that I'm trying to make is that Jesus is not teaching self-mutilation as a cure for lust or for sin in general, for that matter. Because, well, think about it. If you gouge out your right eye, well, you have a left one. If you cut off your right hand, we well, have a left one. Only this time, you don't have another hand to cut the other one off. And so, my point is, you would still go on sinning because all you've done is address these external things like the the bruised and bleeding Pharisees who they saw a woman and and, and did this and you never actually addressed what was going on in your heart, is my point. This is why I've been trying to emphasize the necessity of regeneration and a heart purified by the Holy Spirit. Now, do I say that we could ever hope to be perfect this side of heaven? No, I do not. But the reality is that when the Spirit gives us new hearts, clean hearts, hearts of flesh, and He helps us to receive Jesus' words here, that is when we are able to truly apply them. And so, okay, then. so, so what, what do they mean? We obviously know we're not going to start uh, gouging our eyes out and, and, and things like that, but what, what is Jesus saying? Well, when He tells us, for example, to you know, if our eye causes you to sin, to, to cut it out, and for it would be better to enter into life without it than to go to hell with it, what he's saying is that which leads us into sin, no matter how precious it is to us, we should cut it off. Cut it off or it would be better to enter into eternal life without those things than to go to hell with those things. For example, just speak to very practical things, you know, if, if watching television or, or scrolling through social media or other things like that, if, if that causes you to lust, you ought to cut those things out of your life. You know, everyone's telling you about this, this new movie that you just, you just got to see it. Well, you look it up on, on, on the internet and you find out that, well, it has nudity in it. And if you are mature enough to know the weakness of your own flesh, well, it's like you're not, you're not going to go. Because, I mean, how much more important is your eye to you than a movie? How much more important is your hand to you than a movie? Jesus says it would be better to cut it off and go to, to eternal life than to keep it and go to hell. Well, I, I mean, yeah, it would be better to not watch a movie and, and, and go into eternal life than to watch it and go to hell. And obviously, we have to understand that rightly. We're not talking about works-based salvation, but the reality is we are in Scripture told to use God's law to examine our own hearts, to see where we stand. Now, you start talking like this, and people want to call you a Puritan, and, and you say, well, thank you, I appreciate the compliment. 
Because the, you know, I made John laugh one time when we were doing a job, and I said, you know, John, we're going to, I forget how I said, we're going to shingle this roof to the glory of God. And, And what I was trying to get at there is, is the Puritans sought to evaluate all aspects of their lives in relation to God and to God's glory. And so ought we. There, there was nothing neutral. There was nothing, nothing secular. Everything was sacred from the, the labor that, that a man does, from the way that he loves his wife, the way he takes care of his children, the way he is in, in his community or wherever. Everything he does, Paul says, whether we eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to what? To the glory of God. Not to the glory of myself, but unto God and unto his glory. And you say, God, well, how can, how can I do these things to please you? And so I, if, 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 if this is your mindset, you want to evaluate everything like that. The, the entertainment that you take in, the activities that you engage in, the people you surround yourself with. God, and what is what I am doing glorifying to your name? And you say, but Logan, if, if I'm not watching certain things or if I'm not on Instagram or if I'm not doing this or if I'm not doing that, I'm not going to fit in. I, I'm not going to fit in with this culture. And to which I reply, your point? Because Jesus says that the world is going to hate you because you are not of the world. Why? Because Jesus chose us out of the world. So we don't... We, so, so, so fitting in and being like the world is not a good thing in Jesus' sight. Now, it would be better for you to enter into eternal life having been considered an outcast, having been considered a weirdo, a prude, a Puritan, than for you to fit in with this wicked culture and go to hell. The, the, the radical lifestyle that Jesus wants us to live is that we would study ourselves so carefully, we would find each and every area in which we leave a door open for sin to come in, and we would rush to lock that door. You know, the, the, the Puritans were called doctors of sin, not because they, they sinned so much, but because they literally studied the topic of sin to, to an incredible degree. Because they were so concerned with pleasing God and with mortifying the deeds of our flesh, of, of the flesh. And so when Jesus talks about cutting out your eye or cutting off your hand, obviously he's using metaphorical language, but metaphorical language still has a meaning to it. It's like if you consider your right eye precious, if you consider your right hand precious to you, then anything which seems precious to you, that is leaving a door open for you to fall into sin, should be cut off, should be exterminated. And so, let me say this about sexual temptation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says to, quote, flee from sexual immorality. It's like sometimes, you know, we may think that, that we're strong enough to, to fight off that stuff, to fight off those urges, but we're not. We are not called to fight, we are told to flee. One thinks of the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. When, in the book of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, Joseph, through different circumstances, was eventually brought by, or eventually bought, excuse me, by an Egyptian by the name of Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh. Now, the Bible says that Joseph was, was handsome in form and appearance. And, and so Joseph, he, he's in the house, he, he's doing his work, and Potiphar's wife 
uh, began casting her lustful eyes upon Joseph, saying, lie with me. And one of the things that Joseph says is, how, how, can, I do, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Well, you know, one day the woman grabs Joseph by the garment, physically puts her hands on him, and she says, again, lie with me. Now, what, what does Joseph do? Does he, does he stand there and, and try and reason with the woman? No. No, he does not leave any opportunity for the flesh. And the Bible says that he fled. He, he ran out of the house, leaving his garment in her hand. And, and you obviously know what else happens in the story, but the point is that that ought to be our attitude towards sexual sin. Remember the words of the apostle in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now think about that, that phrase, must not even be named among you. You know, what a sad and tragic thing it is anytime we hear of these sexual scandals inside the church. Well, how do you avoid that? Well, to avoid that, you diligently work to cut off any opportunity to fall into the sin of lust, which is the beginning of all adultery, all fornication, and all sexually immoral acts. And so, now it is because of the fact that, that we live in this world, and as we've already talked about, our culture's standards for modesty are virtually non-existent. It's like advertisers are constantly trying to, to, to use sex to make a dollar. Uh, and, you know, we cannot possibly do anything other than, you know, you know we talk about the, the desert fathers in, in the fourth century who, because of the increasing sinfulness of the Roman Empire, retreated out and, and lived in, in caves and stuff like that. And, but, but the reality is, as much as we can see how some of the, the writings of those men or the teachings, you know, had very positive impact on the church, the reality is that this idea of going and being a monk in the desert or in a monastery is not, not biblical. We, we are not called to retreat. Uh, and so, you know, you cannot ever hope that you would never again be in a situation where uh, a temptation to lust would not arrive, would not be present. And besides, a man's own imagination and fantasies can even lead him into sin. That is why it is exceedingly necessary that any true change in our lives is going to come from God's grace purifying our hearts. That is where it all happens. And, 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 and I want to say this again. It, it, is, a, it is a process. We are not, I, I am not one of those who would teach uh, us that Christians are going to be perfectly holy and perfectly without sin this side of heaven. But I will just say what Jesus says, and that is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we, we thank you for our time this evening. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the admonishment therein. Uh, dear Lord, we just pray that uh, all that was done tonight, uh, worshiping, uh, was pleasing, was acceptable in your sight. Father, we pray that by the communication of your Spirit, that these words would have a transforming and powerful impact upon us all. In Jesus' name.
Amen.